Hello and welcome to episode 179 of Effect. Something to do with the Shire. I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew and I've got a strange sense of deja vu. Haven't we all? <laughs> I'm about to tell you exactly what we're going to be talking about in the rest of the programme because actually we have recorded this programme already and re-recorded over the introduction, so this is the second time we're saying this. <laughs> so without any doubt, I can say that we have a new patron to thank who's actually a returning old patron. We've got a world of gaming news that really shows some different trends happening in right across the world of gaming. And, um, and then we've got me reviewing... Uh, the One Ring starter set. And Dave, you're talking about Alien the Colony. And uh, somewhere around the end of the One Ring and the beginning of Alien the Colony, there's an incredible kerfuffle where we lose connection and all sorts of things go wrong. Some of, some of that will be edited out. Some of it may get in there. So towards the end of the episode, this may feel like it's in a little bit of chaos. We, we'll see what the editing suite can provide us with. Uh, yeah, but please bear with us. And um, I, I, I can tell the, the different opening energy here, Matthew, that you had in delivering that than we had delivering it an hour and a half ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, this time you just said, oh, we've got, we've got Peter coming back. We've got World of Gaming. We've got my well, piece. Well, we haven't, we've I got haven't said Peter. Piece. You've spoiled it now. <laughs> right, uh, shall we get on? Yes. Shall we get on with thanking our new patron who's actually a returning old patron? Yes. And that is Peter Taylor. Welcome back, Peter. Peter, you'll see how our professionalism has increased in the time that you've been away. <laughs> We're a slick operation now, that's for sure. Now we are definitely something, definitely. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, so thank you. Welcome back, Peter. Uh, <clears throat> it's good to see you on the Discord again. Come and play lots of games with us, because we, we did earlier on in an unscripted moment, talk about all the marvellous games that we're playing. Um, and the collaboration but, uh, efforts that we've got going on. And, with our and the patrons. other collaboration efforts. Yeah. Yeah. So shall we, shall we just quickly talk about that a little bit? Go. So one of the exciting things that, that came out in the last couple of weeks is our patron Thomas was inspired by an earlier episode of this podcast <laughs> to think about what sort of campaign can we do that doesn't massively change the horizon. As um, as Mercy of the Icons is in the process of doing, but but allows people to explore the horizon, and loads of people are feeding in ideas, and I think we're going to put a campaign together, aren't we, Dave? It, we are, and it's it's. I think the inspiration behind it for Thomas is a is a kind of around the world in eighty days kind of thing, so we mm -hmm. can kind of showcase the horizon from top to bottom in all its cultural and uh, you know, violent glory, um, and we've now got. 12 people, I think, have, have uh, uh, indicated their interest in collaborating in one way or another. And we're cracking on with it. Yeah, it's a bit of a big project. Not sure how quickly we'll mm. manage to achieve it, but there's lots of enthusiasm and it should be great fun. And there's also, I mean, there's still room. If others want to, if other patrons want to get involved, then shout and come along. There's going to be loads of stuff to contribute. Should, yeah, should be really absolutely. Good. And at whatever level. So, Peter, if you just come back into the patronage and you'd like to join in, you come and come and just you know put your hand up yeah. say hi but great welcome back peter lovely to have you back on board okay um 
And the next thing that we did after we did thanking new patrons was talk about the world of gaming. And actually, this is the point at which... <laughs> we think the recording think. is okay. So the very first thing we are talking about in the world of gaming is, Dave? Yeah, the first thing I think we've got to talk about is um, some interesting news about Foundry and drive through RPG. Do you want to tell me about that? Yeah, so... Um, Foundry and DriveThruRPG are linking up, so now you can get your Foundry packages or whatever on DriveThruRPG, and you can buy games and get the associated package, I think, for free or for not much extra when you get it off Foundry. Yeah. Um, now, this is kind of interesting because uh, DriveThru did try their own virtual tabletop which I remember being utterly unable to even log into. I don't um, think I ever tried it, actually. It was called Astral. Yeah. And no, I, I thought, well, well, you know, give it a go, see what it's like. Um, it was, um, well, to be honest, it was dreadful. Oh, I don't know how dreadful. It might have been wonderful, but I, but getting getting it to start was dreadful. So Your experience of it was dreadful, yeah. Now, of course, uh, Foundry is not something that either you nor I have much experience with because we are um, Luddites in the world of modern technology. But we have lots of patrons who not only use it, but also create stuff for it. So yes. shout out to Paul here who creates stuff for, um, well, has you know created some of the, the official stuff for Alien yep. and for other free league games. Um, so... I think it's this is good news for Paul. I, I well, I don't know whether Paul gets uh, anything for every copy sold, but but it sounds to me like Foundry is going to now with drive through RPG get bigger and mm. um, maybe more important than Roll Twenty, which I think must be currently the most um, most used um, online yeah, platform. Yeah, it's, it's quite a big step actually. I mean, it, it's it also we were talking about it before the show before we started recording. This is uh, another step down the line of cementing online play as a key element in role-playing games. Mm. And we talked about this. You know, we, we tried online play, or I tried online play before the lockdown, didn't really enjoy it, stopped stopped doing it for that reason. Obviously, then with lockdown, everybody was forced to do it. And I've grown to quite enjoy it. I, I, it's fine. I like it. It's okay. It's not the same as being around the table. But it's a damn sight better than not getting around a table at all. Um, yeah. So it's uh, so it's great, and I think yeah, there are some people who who actively love it. Um, I guess there are some people I think who actively hate it as well. But the, you know, the, yeah, the, I had a customer in the game shop actually earlier this week who which game shop is that, Matthew? So no, that that'll be the game shop order shot that we're not allowed to advertise. <laughs> I thought I might as well just give up and shill for you, pal, because it's no, there's no point in me resisting. Well done. You're going to keep mentioning Good it anyway. Good shilling there, Dave. Excellent <laughs> shilling. Uh, I was in the game shop, order shop, working, and I was helping a customer find some presents for... She didn't know much about D&D, &D, um, but she knew she had a friend who played it. She explained that her friend played exclusively online. He's never... Well, was that deliberately chose not to play face to face? Was that or? I th I think deliberately chose. You know, she I okay. think she was kind of indicating that he's a shy chap who yeah. doesn't really like getting out and interacting with people face to face. He's but, happier but, doing it over you know, the screen. Yeah, doing it online. I mean, I still find I had another conversation with um, 
my local gang here that I play with once a week. We had to postpone the game we were doing on Wednesday. And we were talking about going back to face-to-face. Or they, one of them said, we could play longer online. And I cannot play really much longer than an hour and a half, two hours max. I find it incredibly tiring on. It does get quite tiring, doesn't it? Whereas, um, you know, I think we had about six hours we, we with our break for lunch for the last session that uh, you and I did around a table. I only say that because um, this very morning, the first episode of that has been released on <laughs> Excellent. at your play podcast. Yeah, nice, good job. Um, no, I think there's a th- and there, there's definitely a thing there because I when when you first suggested doing the. Um, Mercy of the Icons campaign that we've been doing on Monday nights on our YouTube. Uh, mm-hmm. And you were like, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to run it for an hour and a half. My, my initial reaction was, hour and a half? What's the point? You've hardly started in an hour and a half. But actually, it has worked out really well. And an hour and a half, particularly on a school night, is plenty, isn't it? I think, actually. Mm. And so I've, I've been converted to that idea that an hour and a half or two hours is enough for an online session. I have run some mammoth ones, particularly when I've been playtesting um, the yeah, the Alien Freely, the Alien stuff, um, Destroy of Worlds, and Heart of Darkness, and those. And we've had some mammoth sessions, well, six or seven of them, then crammed into the space of a couple of weeks to, uh, to try and you know get through as much of that as possible. And that's that's fine, but as you say, it is mentally quite wearing. Quite hard work. Yeah, and bear in mind that I rage quit in one of those sessions. I don't know how long we've been playing when I did that, but yeah. I, I I would put the length of time and my general tiredness and irritableness as a contributory factor to that rage quit. Possibly, yeah. I mean, and, and the fact uh, that you're I mean, just obviously a... the major factor is you totally fucking the rules up, mate. But um... <laughs> now, the major factor is that that you know you're you're a bit of a, a prima donna twat at times, aren't you? So you just fancied a fancied an exciting departure. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> uh, let's not reopen uh, but, that, that, that debate. I think we agreed <laughs> that, 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 that we were both right. <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah, but I was more right than you. Not, not <laughs> anyway, <necessarily>. Cal- <laughs> Fuck you, I'm going to rage quit now, bastard. <laughs> well, that's the end of the programme. <laughs> May the icons bless you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Luckily, uh, we don't need Dave. We've already got his pre-recorded content. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go and delete it. Uh, no, uh, but- it's already in my program. <laughs> Damn you! Yes, um, but yeah. So, um, so that's so. I think yeah, that's sorry. that's probably a good step, isn't it? And I think I mean the other thing. I mean, I'm sure we said this before. The other thing that is great about online play is that you get to play with friends from all over the world if you can get the time zones mm. to, to work. So playing with the likes of Thomas in Australia and well, all of our friends in the US, um, it's been it's been great. Uh, whereas yeah, normally I've got to say that. there'd be no chance of doing that at all. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I had the best session that I've played this year. And okay, we're only a few months into the year, but it might also be one of the best sessions I played last year as well. Mm-hmm. And that was Thomas running um, uh, oh, Harlem Unbound with yeah. the Vesson Rule Set. And that was just a fabulous session that simply would not have happened were it not for online play, simply yes. because Thomas lives in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so, so I think there's yeah. definitely that upside. I say, I, I do like, I, you know, my preference will always be to be around the table. But, you know, if I want to play with the likes of Thomas or or, or any of our other friends who are in different continents, then, um, or even in different countries, you know, it's not easy to play with a friend who's mm. in Sweden, say. Um, 
No. The only way we can do that is online. So it definitely has its place, and that place appears to be bedding in and getting bigger, isn't it? Yeah. But also, it looks to me, just one last bit on, because, of course, we had this conversation from Foundry and Drive-Through joining up. It makes me think that Foundry backed the right horse. Sorry, not Foundry. Free League backed the right horse when they started saying, okay, we're going to do online content. Which is the platform we're going to do it for? We're going to do it for Foundry. Feels like Foundry is on the up and up now. It does. Maybe even you and I will need to get our heads around it. (laughs) I'm not sure. See, I'm quite happy using Zoom and screen sharing. Yeah, I find, or um, I find my, StreamYard. Yeah, or StreamYard, yeah. I mean, I find my, my experience, the main the main benefit, for me anyway, that you get through through those um, VTTs is mm-hmm. um, your tokens on the map and may, maybe the dice roller can help you out. Um, I don't think I need either of them. And sometimes I've had a couple of experiences where Moving the tokens on the screen has completely dominated the actual yeah. the actual action, and it's like, ah, well, this is kind of pointless. Um, yeah, and it just gets and in even the way. Slightly tiresome. Yeah, yeah. and it's it, it doesn't actually add anything, and you don't need it. Um, but I get some people love it, and I guess they're probably some some people who are really slick at managing the tokens in their game, so it, it doesn't become a, um, a a barrier to enjoying it. Uh, but uh, yeah. just just for me, my my limited experience, I just kind of felt I don't really need this. I just want to share the map and point a cursor. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. that's just me. <clears throat> right. Well, the next bit of news, moving on, um, takes us back, Dave, to our very first collaborative project, which was <laughs> your Judge Dread adventure that we published as a fanzine songs back in nineteen eighty. Songs of blood whenever. and sorrow. Eighty-five, I think we worked it out. It was eighty-five. Yeah, we 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 foolishly didn't actually date the piece of paper. So we, although I've still got it here, I have no idea. I've still got a copy. Eighty-five. Of it, yeah. Let's say eighty-five. I've, it's um, when we were leaving school, mate. We were actually, wasn't it? We were still at school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, no, you were still at school. I I was on my way out, mate. <laughs> I'd done my A levels. Uh, anyway, um, uh, Songs of Blood and Fire was a game, was a scenario for the then Judge Dredd RPG from Games Workshop. It's called 666, and wasn't it, the scenario? It was, yeah, it, yeah. it was indeed. And um, the uh, a new Judge Dredd role-playing game was announced yesterday from Rebellion Unplugged, yeah. which is the... Uh, a tabletop games division of Rebellion. Rebellion is the computer company, computer games company, I should say, that owns 2000 AD now. Um, so this is effectively, you know, in-house yeah. Judge Dread role-playing game. But it's based on Dread, which is the RPG of um, where, where the uh, the main mechanic is taking blocks out of a Jenga tower. Yeah. And um, calamities happening when the Jenga Tower finally falls falls. over, yeah. So, apart from the fact that it's Dread, Dread, which I must admit I didn't even pick up on when I first saw their tweet. No, um, I saw saw that, yeah. uh, No, I I didn't either, actually. It's actually bloody brilliant. Um, I'm not sure that I I want to see uh, Twister Rogue Trooper, but but Dread, Dread sounds great. So, I've I've um, I've never played Dread. And the idea of playing a role-playing game that uses a Jenga tower does not interest me in the least. Um, 
So I don't know. Have you played Dread? How does it play? I've not played Dread no. either. I was rather hoping you had since you played all those weird games like Tom <laughs> Candles. I've played Jenga. I love playing Jenga as a game. I'm not sure combining that with a role-playing game offers me anything that at least at least well, you know, in you my know mind's what? eye. Maybe we should try. We it. shouldn't comment until we've tried no, it. No, no, I agree. I, I'm just saying that it, it, there's nothing in it that makes me go, yeah, that sounds great. It makes me go, oh, God, that sounds shit. But as you say, yeah. I haven't played it. So if anybody out there has played it, please let us know how it plays um, and prove me right or wrong or a bit, yeah. a bit of both. Or maybe. maybe let's get us to a game. I'll tell you what, though. Jenga is not a game you can play online. It's not, is it? No. This is very <laughs> much going to be a tabletop game. Yeah. Well, I wonder. So, you know, uh, I wonder. Would is there something in Foundry where they make a Foundry Jenga tower? Oh, just think of the physics of that. No, like, oh dear, no. I don't want to. <laughs> no, not. No, no. Let's move on. So let's Paul, move on to the next bit of news. So this is a message out to Paul. How would that work, mate? Could you do a Jenga tower <laughs> in Foundry? You're the expert. Let us know. Yeah, Paul, you code that. Go on, go on, code it now. I, I want I want the Jenga tower. Um, okay, moving on, though. Uh, some of our patrons are, have received PDFs for the Hellboy role-playing game. Yes, yes. Now, I feel this, you know, we've been having a bit of a conversation about uh, licensed games using the 5e mechanic over the last few episodes. We have. And... Uh, I was very interested to hear from those who have received it, which were Paul, not not um, not Foundry Paul, but Paul, who we call Nobble, because that's his name, his, yeah. his handle, and uh, Thomas have both received. <laughs> Paul, who we call Nobble, just because we're not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's the name he takes. I know, um, I know. I'm only joking. Anyway, <laughs> Nobble. So I asked them, you know, what what's the game like? How how is it different from Five E? How does it do the themes? And um, Meta currencies, meta currencies is how it changes it. Mm. So, uh, it's got you have doom or something, uh, hasn't it? It's got a doom mechanic. You got something a bit like the doom, um, darkness, doom pool from, darkness point pool. It's a doom pool. Yeah, or darkness points or whatever. But also, there's there's points you can play uh, for doing your crazy stunts as well. Um, so. You know, we're seeing a lot of meta currencies, and actually, you know, when when you use a meta currency on a five E game, you're kind of taking something that doesn't really exist in five E and adding it to five E, and actually, it does it, it unlocks pretty much everything. I feel, mm. um, but I'm just thinking very much of your experience with not really enjoying all the meta currencies in 2d20 whether actually this is a trend that we're going to be moaning about like a couple of old grognards <laughs> as more and more games use more and more meta currencies yeah it's yeah again it's it's one of those you don't know how it will play until you play it but i think 5e is one of those like you say is, is a is a system that's full of different ways of of kind of managing the action or what your character wants to do do you need to add yet another currency on top of that to do more stuff or to make that stuff even better because i mean 5e is a heroic game anyway um yeah so i i do wonder i mean i mean meta currencies have been around for a long time uh, it's not like they're a new thing it's just no, it's no. just whether overlaying them on a system that 
for those who like it, obviously already works, whether that adds something or whether it just kind of gets in the way. Uh, I think metacurrencies work quite well in games that are relatively simple because then they can help drive the narrative a bit. I think one of the things I, I like about the 2D20 momentum, which I don't think we really got into as players as well as we should, is the fact that you should be using that as a as a narrative to drive the narrative as well as to drive the number of dice you've got so why are you spending three momentum what does that mean in the story as you're developing it uh, and i think yeah. if you do that it probably brings a lot more life and color to the meta currency than just saying oh this looks a bit tough i want two extra dice so i'm going to spend three momentum is that okay everybody yeah crack on yeah which is the way it's just kind of naturally does happen because at the table when you're in the middle of stuff then that's the way it works but if you can encourage yeah. players to maybe add the narrative bit, then that would perhaps build a more a more uh, fulsome experience, perhaps. And this is this is where we come to your and my different opinions of uh, the Star Trek Adventures role playing game, because for some reason, I find it easy as a player to go ah, you know, um, uh, phasers are locked on the on on, yeah. on the enemy ship. When I spend when I spend those meta yeah. currencies, whereas yeah. you actually want me to do an action that's locking phases or whatever, but um, but uh, I can't do that in the other two D twenty game I played, which is Conan. I find it really difficult to spend momentum in a narrative way, yeah. other than actual physical momentum um, mm -hmm. in in Conan. So uh, so that's, that's yeah, it's an interesting one. Game. I think also though the fact that we're talking about two D twenty and we're not mentioning threat. Is a is a is another um, interesting kind of wrinkle in the in in my experience, threat a bit like darkness points, is a really difficult thing for many GMs to get their head around because mm -hmm. it, it's it's fine having it, it's fine using it to make you know slightly more enemy reinforcements turn up, but again you're into that ever um, self fulfilling prophecy, you know you have to push or you have to use your momentum in order to. Um, to actually succeed you then run out of momentum so you might buy extra dice with threat you then give the gm the threat to then spend therefore you need to buy more threat in order to succeed so it's yeah uh, yeah and and i think tony when he was running the star trek adventures used very little threat and i i don't i'm not i'm not saying that as a criticism at all i think he when he used it it was in those big set piece moments to make maybe an extended task more difficult or add some um you know some extra jeopardy but I think as a GM, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I think he probably found it quite difficult to get it, get the balance right. Because mm. again, in Star Trek, it can be really easy to kill a player character without even thinking about it. Um, because obviously, you know, phases are very, very dangerous weapons. Um, yeah. So I think there's a balance thing there that perhaps is is really quite hard to find with those meta currencies. Um, but then you get, I mean... There are some games, so Fate, for example, not Fate, um, Savage Worlds. I'm really enjoying yeah. playing Savage Worlds. Um, the Bennies in Savage Worlds is your meta currency. I, I still haven't really got my head around kind of the the, the narrative way that they should work. Um, and again, we kind of fight over earning them. <laughs> you know, I've done something good enough to earn a Benny, and Andy says, "Well, no, you haven't." And then we have a ten minute conversation about why I think I have earned a Benny and. 
he then gets frustrated and just gives me one to shut me up. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, uh, it's, that's that's you and gaming all over them. <laughs> <laughs> we all give you one just to shut you up. <laughs> Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Um, yeah, but I think actually, you know, uh, more, more, more pertinently to your point, uh, uh, getting us back on topic. Yeah, I do think actually Benny's an interesting case because we don't think of those narratively at all, do we? This no. is just a hero point, effectively. I, you know, I used to roll, roll with a punch and you know avoid a chunk of damage that might have taken me out, or I, I, I use them to re-roll my dice and. A, I've done it really badly. There's nothing like it, it. It doesn't connect particularly to the narrative of the game. You're you're right about that. Whereas I think faint points do, because again, faint points you kind of have to describe something that's how you're using that. Yes, point. yeah, because it, because it forces you to link it to the narrative, doesn't it? Um, yeah, and I, and I you know I don't think Savage Worlds. My experience of playing, you know, Solomon Kane hasn't suffered by not no. doing that. I think it might just add another level of 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 you know additional fun if we did do that. Um, yeah. But I still love playing it. And similarly, I mean, you know, I've said many times my my criticisms of the two um, D twenty system and Star Trek Adventures aside, I still really enjoyed playing it when Tony was running it. I had a great, you know, I just love the genre. Um, even if I have my my concerns over some of the mechanics and some of the rules, but yeah. So is that is that enough on meta currencies for now? I think that's enough <laughs> on meta currencies. Yeah, don't worry. Um, we're twenty five minutes in, and um, we ought to be getting into our core content. But before we do, the last bit of world gaming news, which segues neatly into the next bit of content, is the One Ring is available in stores. It is. It is. Um, and it's available in the game shop, order shop. I I noticed <laughs> this because I said on yep. Monday, oh, the One Ring should be out tomorrow. Um, do we know if we're getting it delivered? And I wasn't working the next day, but then I saw that it had been delivered the next day. Can I can I just say the on the whole um, shilling the Aldershot Games Company um, once not per, the Aldershot Games Company the Game Shop Aldershot once per episode is the limit. All right, Matt. Okay. <laughs> Any more than that? Okay. And, yeah. So like that's enough. Anyway, yes. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because. Um, that that release date kind of came and went for me anyway, without uh, without a whimper because I've had the game in the box in my on my desk for months. <laughs> you know, it's uh, so I kind of forget that for those people who didn't back it, um, you know, Monday was the day. Yeah, but uh, well, I think you know we also got we got two boxes, you and I, we because did. we each got sent a review copy too, and. Um, I remember something, an email or something that said, don't talk about this until, um, until it comes the embargoed out. release date, which is the 22nd of March. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of weird for us Kickstarter backers because, you know, as Kickstarter backers, we've been talking about it for a few months. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, I guess it's difficult to stop a fan who's got the, you know, a, kickback, a, a Kickstarter backer who is a fan and not someone you know, like us who shills for the company. Um, yeah. You can't stop them going online saying, here it is. This is this is great, or this is rubbish, or, you know, all the rest of it. 
Which I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're unusual in that we're fans that get review copies. Um, But yeah, I just thought that was a really interesting thing. But it kind of does occasion this article because we started off by saying we don't do reviews. But here we are. I've had time to play. I mean, your copy has sat, as you just said, in its box. Therefore, not being a game. I haven't but played it. No, being a box. I have. I have. I have, I have read played it, the game. Yeah, no, that's I have good. Run the game, and so I feel now in the week of its release, we can actually do a pertinent and timely review. I agree. Go on then. Let's do. Let's hear what you've got to say. We always say we don't do reviews on effect because we only like to review after we've played some sessions of a game, not just read it. Of course, by the time we have played some sessions, the game is usually old news and no one wants our opinion. But the One Ring hit the stores and general mail order sales this week, and I have already run a number of sessions, so this is one of those rare occasions where I can write a timely and yet informed review. I should say straight away that what I am reviewing is the starter set, not the full game, because it's only the starter set that we've actually played. Now, let's be totally upfront about this. I got a free review copy from Free League. I also kickstarted a copy, so my review copy came later. In fact, I left that review copy unopened and gave it away as a raffle prize when I ran a Free League day at my local game store. One of the sessions I played was during that demo day, so I have played with two groups of players. It's also worth pointing out that the system was new to all the players, and indeed, two of the players were new to RPGs in general. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start with the box. Starter sets often feel like good value, but one of the things that many companies save money on is the box. Some are so flimsy, I'm looking at your Star Wars sets, Fantasy Flight, that they fall apart as soon as the shrink wrap comes off. This is not the case with the One Ring starter set. This is a good quality, robust box, one that is meant to be kept. It's more robust than the Forbidden Lands box, for example, and even the box for the Tales from the Loop board game. It's a box that is meant to last, and meant to be used at the table. But more of that anon. The front of the box has a lovely bit of art, featuring the strong brand with the circle behind the title, not red as on the core book, but a rich, dark green which connects the dark and mysterious forest which three hobbits are about to enter with the sunlit pastoral idyll behind them. One of the hobbits looks back wistfully, not just, one is led to believe, because of artist Martin Grip's apparent reluctance to paint faces. Indeed, one of the other hobbits' faces is dimly lit by a guttering torch. All in all, it's an evocative image, and one which seems representative of the game. It, in fact, represents a moment in the last adventure of the five in the box. 
an adventure that takes the heroes away from the light and relatively gentle adventures that they have had in the Shire to a darker, more mysterious one in the Old Forest. But more on the adventures later. Opening the box takes time. It is so perfectly measured and made that holding the lid and lifting will not remove the lid from the box, but rather start a slow process, wherein the force of gravity works gently on the goods inside to softly, patiently ease the bottom of the box from the lid. And the lid comes with its own surprise. The inside of the lid is printed with a handy summary of the rules and tables. It's a simple uh, DM's, no, no, sorry, GM's, no, LM's screen. And the bottom of the box has a map of the Shire with the expected routes the player heroes may take for each adventure marked on it. This is very useful as the adventures all suggest a route, sometimes in character. But in my experience, the players sometimes had difficulty plotting the route on their map. Yes, the box contains a lovely folding map, 22 by 28 inches, which is about 56 by 71 centimetres. It has the Shire on one side and Eriador, the first setting for the core book, on the other. The cartography and illustration on both of these is superb. Combining the calligraphic style of Tolkien's maps with his naive illustration for the Shire map and a more refined style for the Eriador one. Each map fits its setting perfectly. The borders of both maps incorporate close-up details of certain locations and in Eriador illustrations of some of the particular landmarks. Damn! but they make me want to do a campaign there, which is something I never thought I would say. The starter set also includes a 24-page rulebook with somewhat simplified rules. The biggest absence here is the lack of an experience system. Remember my two players who had not played an RPG before? Well, even they expected that after their first adventure, they would get some experience reward, some advancement. I sympathised and I said I'd check out the experience rules in the core book, but really, really, you don't need them. Experience in the core book is a major event tied up with the fellowship phase of play, which doesn't really occur in this mini-campaign. And narratively, there are other rewards as the players progress, including after the first adventure, Bilbo Baggins offering the heroes a chest of old weapons from which they can choose. If someone really wants to play an improved character, they can, by swapping out their starting character for a veteran of Bilbo's first adventure. The box comes with eight pre-generated characters. Six of them are available from the start. The other two, Bilbo Baggins himself and the dwarf, Balin son of Fundin, become available after the first adventure and, depending on the order you play them, the second. 
The character sheets look like the ones from the main game, but they are slightly simplified. They don't have shadow, for example. They are beautifully printed, to look as though they're filled in by hand. What impressed me, as someone who liked the books well enough in my youth, and who, I guess, was inspired to start gaming by them, but also was someone who just couldn't be bothered with the blooming Silmarillion, is my player's reaction. All are more invested in the books than I was, and they were impressed and inspired by the Hobbit characters. They recognised the names, agreed on the descriptions, and fell in love with the characters they played. None of them wanted to take on the more famous and more competent characters. All eight characters are also easy mode characters, with lower task numbers across the board. In the main game, the generic task number for skills listed under each attribute is derived by subtracting the attribute from 20. In the starter version, they are derived by subtracting instead from 18. It's still pretty hard to succeed though. My players started off hoarding hope and being very reluctant to spend it. But they soon learned to spend hope and seek inspiration if they wanted to get anywhere. Task numbers varied between 11 and 16, and those are pretty high numbers to get when you're rolling a d12 that should only go up to 10, and maybe 2 or 3 d6s. Let's talk about the dice. There is a set in the starter box, but, like all of them, it's misprinted. The d12 should read 1 to 10, plus an Eye of Sauron and a Rune of Gandalf. The Rune is an automatic success and the Eye is zero. But someone somewhere in the process decided that the Eye should replace one, not eleven. So now you have dice that go from two to eleven, which isn't great. But neither is it dreadful in the scheme of things. Free League have offered replacements or a voucher to all the Kickstarter backers but I don't know what their policy is for retail customers picking up these misprinted sets now or to the retail network with stocks of the misprinted dice. Originally, as a backer, I was not going to ask for the replacement dice, but having watched the player's reaction in play, as they start by adding 11 to their total, then realising that it's only worth one, I've changed my mind. That emotional roller coaster detracts from the emotions the players should be experiencing in the story. Really, I think it might be better to play with a normal D12 and explain that the 11 and the 12 both have different effects. However, even though the dice are misprinted, it's no reason not to buy the box set, which is otherwise incredibly good value. Apart from the components we have already mentioned, it includes a pack of war gear cards featuring weapons and armour, not just for this set but for the main game. It was fun to offer the players a subset of these cards when Bilbo brought out his chest of weapons so that they could choose which best suited their character. The box also includes six double-sided journey roll stroke 
combat stance cards, which are not really for this starter version, but for the main game. That said, I think they could be useful in the last of the five adventures, as an introduction to journeying. The combat system in this set does not involve stances. However, as far as I'm aware, this is the only way that players of the main game can get hold of these cards. There are also two further books. The first, a perfect bound guide to the Shire, 50 odd pages, packed full of hooks for further adventures, plus a Shire journey table, which is a gentle introduction to the full game's concept of journeying. As the book says, however, no road-weary man, doughty dwarf or wandering elf would consider travelling through the Shire as anything more than a pleasant country stroll. The final book contains the adventures themselves, and these are the real gems of the set. I have thoroughly enjoyed running these adventures for my colleagues and for customers at the game shop and one patron. Hello, Will. They managed to do something marvellous, capturing the whimsical, idyllic life that Tolkien describes in the Shire, where the most dangerous antagonist most hobbits will meet is the matronly librarian. But they also foreshadow the horror to come and make you think that life in the Shire may well be worth journeying to the crack of doom to protect. More importantly, they inspired my players. I offered only one adventure, one Sunday evening, but as soon as it was done, they wanted to play the rest. Which brings me to my most important point. I have to be honest with you here. I bought the One Ring because my favourite publishers were making it with no intention of actually running it for others. I chose the deluxe cover because I thought its main job would be to look good on my shelves. But I am as inspired as my players were. I want to run more games using the full rules. I never thought I actually wanted to play in Middle-earth. I thought the setting was too limited for RPG play. Not now. I am invested so in that's, this that's, world now. I, I'd like to th- thank you. Is that the right word? I'd like to recognise uh, this piece as bringing me to an experience I've never, ever had before. And I never, ever thought I would. And, and that is what I'm going to call box porn. Because you gush about that box as if it's some kind of sensual, beautiful creature. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's like food porn. And, you know, I could just just hear Nigella Lawson's voice saying, oh, what, what was it you said? Uh, Wherein the force of gravity works gently on the goods inside. Softly, <laughs> patiently. Oh, dear, okay. So, yes, I get it. You like the box. <laughs> what about the, uh, so but yeah um so i think yeah the key thing for me out of all of that is that it seems that you had no interest in playing the game and now you can't wait to play the game some more as a result of having played the game yeah that that is it precisely um it was really surprising and in fact um 
Okay, I admit I I, I shilled the one the game shop order shot again in in <laughs> and again. the <recorded> piece. Uh, <laughs> That's five again, but, five times but, this episode, mate. Uh, after we played, uh, at some point, my manager said, "Well, what did you think of the game?" And I said, "That thing." I had no intention of playing it, and actually, having played it, I really enjoy it, and we want to play more. And he said, oh, that's really interesting because I, yeah, I had exactly the same feeling about um, Middle Earth playing, you know, doing role playing in Middle Earth. Mm. Um, So, you know, this is a call out to you. If you don't think you want to play in Middle Earth, give it a go. Yeah. Well, I I think I'm in exactly that boat. Um, I've Mm. I've never really had the urge to play um, Middle Earth role playing before. Um, And a bit like you, I backed this. Um, because it was freely doing it and or publishing it, and it was likely to be really good. And as a bit of a collector, it was one of those things I would want to certainly want to have. Um, I obviously haven't played it. I've looked through it. Again, it's a lovely thing to have in your hands. I am. I read through the Rivendell supplement, and mm-hmm. I just love it. It's just, yeah. I mean, I what? I guess as a fan of. Lord of the Rings, you might want to visit Rivendell if you could, but I really want to visit Rivendell now, having read, having read <laughs> this, um, uh, the supplement. So, yeah, I think like you, even just having read it, it's given me the, the kind of the itch to give it a go. Um, yeah, I... Uh, but I think the other thing, and this is for more experienced gamers, I think... Um, you know, particularly, I guess we'll we'll start seeing some actual plays of the starter set coming out. Yeah, and the adventures might all f- look a little bit tame. Uh, you know, as I kind of said in the review, that you know these aren't this this doesn't have the full horrors of a no. Lord of the Rings experience. We're not we're not all reliving World War One in a fantasy land as uh, Tolkien obviously was. Um, but um, but they're fun, and they're so of of the period. And one of the things I've really got to credit uh, Francesco um, for is, you know, given that he's writing this in a second language, you know, he's genuinely Italian, but he writes so well in the style of Tolkien, or not actually in mm. the style of Tolkien, because Tolkien's a bit boring actually when you <laughs> reread his book. Um, but he evokes the style of Tolkien enough and the spirit of particularly so the Shire, which is where I've concentrated on, um, you know, for the last few weeks, uh, it, it feels like it could be in a sequel to the Hobbit. It really does. Yeah. No, that's, that's cool. I think that there's definitely a thing when I first heard that these, the initial scenarios were focusing on Hobbits in the Shire, I thought, Oh, isn't that a bit of a miss? But actually, mm. having having heard you and, and talked to you about it otherwise, I think actually that's a like you say it, it sets up the whimsical, as you said it, the kind of the whimsical, fun loving, good life of um, uh, of the hobbits in the Shire as the beginning of uh, uh, of the campaign, and then it you know that I think I think role playing that and and getting that vibe would be really cool. Mm-hmm. And then that giving the baseline for everything else that's going to come after it as uh, kind of, you know, that this is where we start and things go downhill and get darker and darker from here. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah, and there's something there's something to protect. You now know what you're fighting for, I guess. No, I think that's a, um, as a ho- as a hobbit, anyway. Yeah, well, yes, or or, or somebody who loves the hobbits. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Which, in a way, you know, if you think about the fellowship, they all kind of really loved their hobbits, as it were. I mean, yeah. you know, obviously not in that way. That would be pervy. <laughs> we can cut that bit out, surely. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, uh, okay technical issues aside yes <laughs> um yes yeah, so so i think it's uh you know it, it, i'm i'm i had no particular desire to play it i'm now really looking forward to playing it as so i gifted the um the, the the core book to to my brother tony in the hopes that he will uh he'll take the hint and run it in due course um i when i when i when i buy him a role-playing game it, it usually means here you go tone run this for mm-hmm. me um, and he's very accommodating in doing that, which is which is great. Um, but it might be a little while before we get around to it because we're still we're still working on tales of the old west at the moment. Mm. I I am suddenly thinking there was that time where you made me buy my own copy of Coriolis so I could run it for you. Yep, this is this is clearly a a, a, a tactic that I've used more than once in my life, and it tends to work. Yeah, but, and, and, but I had to and pay actually, for my own the, copy. You gave Tony gifts. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> Oh, well, that's because it was being backed. I told you to back it. You could have now, backed if it, it on already, my behalf. <laughs> if it had already been out, I could have then bought it and sent it to you. Right. But because it was being backed. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, I, you know, I tend to choose quite good games to do that, yeah, I think. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, no, that's not You've bad. had a pretty good, um, uh, you know, we, we've got a whole podcast out of this game that you, uh, you quite like. <laughs> so that's good. Forced you to back. Yeah, exactly. Um, but of course, yes. there's another game you quite like, and that's Alien. And we have got another segment to fit in. And what with all our um, uh, technical difficulties we've recently been experiencing, we should uh, we should move on to those before you've got to go and uh, uh, take your father away for the weekend. Yes. So, um, so Alien: The Colony. Yes. So we paused that some months ago. Largely down to uh, sort of lack of time on my part to give it the the uh, the attention it deserved. Um, but yeah, let's. Um, you, well, you gave me homework last time to uh, talk a little bit about how uh, how I might resurrect that and what I might do with it. Um, right. So yeah. So let us have, shall have we mark that homework now? Most of you will remember. That last year, I started an alien RPG campaign based on some rules I'd put together for colony play. It was imaginatively called Alien the Colony, and we streamed it on the Effect YouTube. I also decided to run it as a West Marches style campaign, with the intention of involving as many of the Effect's lovely patrons as wanted to play. It worked. I had 12 players lined up, and we ran a campaign which, at the point we paused it, had aired 10 episodes. 11 including the session 0, and had moved the story of the UPP's colonisation of one iota Scorpii and establishment of the Solovetsky Island colony. I've always wanted to get it going again, and having now paused this for several months, it's time to return to the waterworld of ATC. But there are a couple of considerations I'm having to bear in mind. First and foremost, we were all really enjoying the UPP vibe of Alien the Colony last year, 
with Russian authoritarian leaders, Chinese police, secret or otherwise, and the fun to be had role-playing a Soviet-style vibe that in those days felt like we were playing with ancient history. Sadly, that vibe is not so exciting anymore. Recent events have demonstrated that that history is horrifically not so ancient as we once thought. For me personally, I'm not keen to run a game that evokes that kind of feeling, and although I haven't canvassed my players directly, I strongly suspect that they will feel the same. Secondly, as you will know, running a regular game is demanding at the best of times. Running a West Marches game, I found, was doubly so, with a different cast every session, the need to have a story that could be exciting as well as satisfyingly wrapped up in two or two and a half hours, and the pressure of doing something good enough that those viewers kind enough to donate their time to watch don't go away feeling like they've wasted that time. But we did receive a lot of positive feedback about ATC, and I'm often asked if and when we will be bringing it back. So whilst I'm not able yet to commit to a date, I can say that yes, ATC will be returning to your screens in the not-too-distant future. But how am I going to deal with the concerns we have about the campaign? Well, I hate to say it, but Matt came up with a great idea I'm going to run with. And in that sense, the new campaign will be like a spin-off. A Knott's Landing to the original Dallas, if you will. Or a much better example, I think, a Frasier to the original Cheers. For those of you who don't know, while I was always a big fan of Cheers, Frasier is most definitely my favourite US comedy ever, and is in my top three best comedy programmes of all time, vying with Blackadder and Yes Minister for the top spot. Anyway, the campaign will continue on one iota Scorpii, but will focus on a new colony, one established elsewhere on the planet by a three-world empire colony ship that really should not have landed there, as the planet is notionally claimed by the UPP but they will have no choice as mechanical failure will force them to make landfall or die in the colder space. It'll be fine, they think. The paperwork can be fixed after the event, and who knows, the UPP colony may just die off anyway. We will need a new Session Zero to create new characters and have them set their colony down on the planet. I might consider allowing a player or two to port over their PC from the previous campaign, should they wish to. They could be political asylum seekers or refugees fleeing some misdemeanor or other, seeking the protection of the Three World Empire from the iron fist of the UPP. Yes, by doing this, I might be casting the UPP into that old Soviet-era bad guy cliché, but I wouldn't expect the UPP to feature heavily in the campaign, rather more a looming shadow over the horizon than a regular feature. After all, on the frontier, don't we all share the same risks? Problems and hazards? Isn't there more we have in common to draw us together than to drive us apart? I certainly don't want to fall into the lazy trap of casting every UPP citizen into the bad guy bracket. And where they might feature, I'd try and surface a nuanced and human story, rather than a simple defeat the UPP bad guys trope. As tempting as that might be right now. I'm also going to amend the West Marches approach. Again, by taking a leaf out of Matthew's book. Those of you who've been watching our weekly Monday Night Coriolis campaign will know that this campaign has followed the fortunes of two main characters while bringing in a wide range of guest stars for parts of the story. This is not strictly a West March's style, but it does allow for many players to get involved to a lesser or greater degree. 
Also, as a GM, it means the stories can breathe. They don't have to come to an exciting conclusion after every two hours of play. And the pressure on the GM, in terms of prep for the game, and in running the game on the night to a strict schedule, is much reduced. I'm going to follow this approach for the new Alien the Colony. It may not be the same two or three key player characters for the duration, but each story will have a couple of main characters, and others can shift in and out as supporting guest stars at their convenience. These stories might be mini-campaigns, perhaps three or four scenarios, and then the main PCs can shift out and allow others to take the limelight. A variation of this approach works really well for us with Coriolis, so we will see how it will work for the return of ATC. Uh, finally, I need to think again about the theme of the campaign. The Alien RPG really covers three tropes. Haunted house horror, ruthless corporate machinations, and action thriller. Those of you who've watched Alien the Colony before will know that I like to focus on the unknown, the alien creatures or plant life that may seem hostile, but which, through knowledge, can be overcome or accommodated. While my favourite default will continue to be stories of scientific discovery that come with some jeopardy, and that might encourage a bit of infighting over the shares from the discovery, I'll sprinkle in some corporate shenanigans and throw in some action adventures once in a while to kill off some of the... to spice up the campaign. Also, I'm really looking forward to coming back to the planet of One Iota Scorpii, a place that, in the colony campaign, needs to be as much of a character as the players themselves. I'm not able to make any announcement right now about exactly when it will relaunch, but watch this space. Well, hmm. Obviously, I, I kind of feel that I'm, I'm torn with the marking here. Um, obviously, A, A plus that we're bringing, bringing it back, C minus for there not being a place for the Inspector Shoe Mysteries, which is what <laughs> I've always felt this campaign is really called. Um, Unless Inspector Shu wanted to to defect from the UPP to the three world third three world empire, I do like the Inspector Shu mysteries, and I'm trying to work out if there's a place for Inspector Shu in this new colony. But I think probably not. No, well, I think I, I suggested that you know one or two players could, if they wanted to, import their their character over. It was just I didn't want if somebody was deeply in love with their character from the original ATC. Then I didn't. I wanted to give at least a couple of people the chance to to, to come across, um, rather than force everyone to have to make a new character. But yeah, no one's obliged. No one's obliged to. No one's obliged to. <clears throat> I'm deeply in love with Inspector Shu, but I think, I think, I think probably, um, I don't think he has a place in this new campaign. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, um, that's now that's with, fine. So, with the technical. Um, uh, screw-ups that we've experienced this time. I don't know whether we've yet mentioned, but I want to ask you about whether we might have uh, players that could wear HMS Yamato patches in this new campaign. So I, I think the, so the, the setting, um, the idea that I've got for getting this this new campaign going is is just that. If the players come up with something else they'd rather do, then um, then that's absolutely fine. But thinking it would just it's a bit easier to just set it on one iota Scorpii. And, and have that but if there's a, a variation on that then fine I'm, I'm happy for the players to, to drive where that goes but with this particular idea I think um, uh, it won't be the Yamato that's actually the vessel because that's a military vessel and this is going to be a mm -hmm. colony ship 
it could be that as they are being forced to land on the planet um, with their ship going horribly wrong, they send a distress signal. And so there is the prospect of the Yamato coming to help. Um, but I think maybe... Or maybe there are maybe, some Yamato people um, uh, who are in seconded to this ship or something like that. I don't know. Potentially, yeah. I mean, if... Um, I mean, if if you've got a character idea that is a crew member from the Yamato, then I'm more than happy to entertain that. Absolutely. Uh, but are you just trying to get rid of the the, the, the patches? <laughs> no, 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 no. I just think uh, they're lovely patches. They're they are lovely very patches. nice Everybody patches. Actually, I need to. We need to send them out to all our patrons. I need to find a suitable jacket to put them on. Put mine on. Yes. It does look quite cool. I have to say. Yeah. Right. So there we are. I, d- I don't know when it'll be. I'll start um, talking to our patrons about interest and all that. Um, it- it'll probably be, you know, a, a, sh- a small number of months rather than a small number of weeks before I'm in the right place to kick it off. But definitely want to get it going again in the not too distant future. Good. Good. Um, now, this has been a dreadful recording session, Dave, um, and it's all my fault. It, but. It is. Let us bring it to an end <laughs> Indeed. and start again in a little <laughs> to, to while. To re-record the opening that you've gone and taped over. Yes. <laughs> taped over. Oh, if only those were the days. If it was tape, you could see where it was. Um, yes. Anyway, uh, where are we? Uh, so next next time. Um, I don't think... Next time. That's what we're we doing now. We don't have anything definitely planned for next time, but we have a couple of things bubbling on the stove, don't we? So... Um, uh, we are still hoping to have an interview with David Barnett. Uh, th- th- David, if it is David, is the the the, the writer of the Shit. Colony Wars Alien book, and we wanted to get him on and to talk about that and talk about the collaboration with Free League for the Alien RPG scenario that's going to be tucked in the back of the book. We are obviously um, waiting for him to be ready to do that as. Um, uh, there are. He's, he's working for a bigger company, and obviously, we need to make sure yeah. that everyone's happy for us t- to talk about it openly first. But hopefully, we yeah, might get. They might want us to do that later, nearer the actual. Yeah, release. but hopefully, we'll find out a bit more um, when we can do that in the next week or two. Uh, so it might be yeah. the next episode, but it might not. It's a mystery, and that's a mystery. And the other thing that might be around next episode, because I've asked whether uh, he'd like to do it, but uh, I asked him in the middle of the night when he was asleep, and he hasn't yet responded. So that's um, uh, that's entirely fair. But uh, our patron and friend of the show, Toby, who also um, runs the RPG Logic podcast, has got some ideas about money in Coriolis that we all really like. And uh, we thought we might get him to record uh, a piece putting some of those ideas into the ether. So they might be coming next week or the week after. All the week after that, not even next week. What am I talking about? <laughs> next fortnight. Next episode. This this, this show has gone completely. Uh, remember the beginning. Remember the beginning that we've wiped it was, over. That, it was such a good start. That you were saying how professional we were. <laughs> You've let the side down, Matt. As always. You've let I the just side had down. to. You know, it's your fault actually because you cursed it by saying that. <laughs> so absolutely, you're the one to blame. Possibly. Anyway, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. And it's goodbye from the poltergeists who are screwing up Matthew's recordings. But may the icons bless your adventures. 
You have been listening to The Effect Podcast, presented by Fiction Suit and the RPG Gods. Music stars on a black sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. And it's not Podcast, it's Gremlins. <laughs> Whatever.